Hey, what's up everyone? This is Gary and I just wanted to come on quickly to say thank you. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this podcast where I talk closely with regular people about personal experiences. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. Hit me up on Twitter, Gary R. Gray Jr. for more. Hey, welcome back to another episode of It's Personal. And on this episode, we have Donalyn Miller, amazing author, blue box mac and cheese expert, lover of learning. On this episode, we talk about how do we get books in every child's hand. Let's get into it. It's about to get personal. 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 Just got personal. Gary and I just got personal. It's personal. My name is Derek Bourne. My name is Cornelius Minor. My name is Val Brown. This is Nick Stone. Hi, I'm Donald Miller. Hello, welcome back everyone to uh, It's Personal. And today, as usual, I am extremely excited for our guest today. Again, I think one of my first books as a teacher was The Book Whisperer. And if you haven't gotten that book, I believe it came out around 2008, 2009. And when I got this book, this was something that I used as almost like my teacher Bible. So um, talking to this person today is exciting. Um, I'm going to allow her to introduce herself and we'll get going. Hi, I'm Donalyn Miller. I'm excited to be on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I am so excited to have you. Um, we're going to hop right into it. Um, Don, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, if you want to share your background, uh, where you grew up, what did your family look like? So I grew up in Texas in the United States. And so Southwest part of the United States, considered part of the South by some and part of the West by others. So mm -hmm. in that weird space. I'm the oldest of four kids. I have a sister, Abby, who's 10 months younger than me. I have a little brother named Wendell who is two years younger than me. And then I have a little sister named Robin who's eight years younger than me. So I'm the oldest girl. My brother Wendell has cerebral palsy. He grew up in a wheelchair. He's still in a wheelchair. He lives in a group home. And so that was really hard on us growing up. My mom was divorced. She had three kids, one of whom had special needs. And so um, being the oldest girl, I think I'm probably the caretaker. I kind of took that role on trying to be helpful to my mom, mm -hmm. like so many older kids are, and just try to be the peacemaker, the responsible mm -hmm. one, all those labels that the oldest often gets. So that's kind of who I was as a kid. Mm -hmm. I, um, my mom got divorced again when I was 17 from my stepdad and came out as a lesbian at that time. Mm -hmm. And so that was the, my senior year of high school. So that was uh, 1985. That was mm -hmm. a very interesting time. Mm -hmm. I uh, went to junior college, did not finish junior college during that time. I was mm -hmm. paying my way through school and uh, I was 18 and 19 and dumb in all those ways that you are <laughs> when you're 18 and 19. <laughs> and uh, so I went up, uh, I spent 10 years working in the hotel and restaurant management. Mm -hmm. and worked as a front office manager of a hotel, worked as a manager in several restaurants. Decided to go back to school to get my degree and I thought I was going to get an accounting degree. Wow. Because that was the responsible thing to do, was get an <laughs> accounting degree. And I thought, well, I thought, you know, I, if I wanted to be the manager of a hotel, right. I would need an accounting degree. I was looking down the road at what experience I had. So, uh, spent about two years in college, 
studying to be an accountant and I came home one day and I told my husband, I don't want to be an accountant. And he said, you don't want to be an accountant? I said, no. He said, what do you want to do? And I said, I, I want to be a teacher. Mm. I've always wanted to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And he said, so go be a teacher. <laughs> it's so supportive. So, yes. So I, ch- well, he was helping me pay for school. I mean, we were paying for <laughs> me to go together. So he did have skin in the game, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we never speak of these 60 hours of accounting <laughs> courses that we paid for. Uh, but I went and I turned around and changed my degree and got my uh, teaching degree. Student taught for people who were younger than me. Wow. Uh, that was a humbling experience to go from being a manager in a hotel mm-hmm. where you have 22 employees who report to you to going to some 28 year old, no offense, 28 year old telling me at 32 what to do in her classroom. Mm-hmm. It was good for me. But wow. uh, the first day I walked into my own classroom, I knew that's what I was supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so you got the highlight reel there. Uh, <laughs> I love know, it. I- I think it actually helped me quite a bit as a, t- I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't say this is the path everyone needs to go on. I think everyone has their own path. But for me, already being a mom, already having been out in the world for 10 years, working mm-hmm. in the world, you know, walking into my classroom at 32, I think was the best thing for me mm-hmm. because I just, I'd already learned as a mom not to sweat the small stuff with kids mm-hmm. and the footnote, it's all small stuff. Mm-hmm. Unless it's really big stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know? I'm, I'm... And then also in the in the um, in the corporate world and the business world, I, I always joke it's the Janet Jackson model. What have you done for me lately? <laughs> right? It's it's like it's, there's always someone who wants your desk, who wants your job, and you've got to be hungry and kind of push yourself because there's always somebody who would be happy to do what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So. I think that walking in my classroom at 32, I already felt like I was behind. Like, oh, the people who are my age, who are teachers, mm-hmm. have already been doing this for eight years. Mm-hmm. And I need to catch up. Wow. Wow. Did I, what, what, so what was the, I think, would you say a lot of your experiences when you were younger influenced you to go into accountant? Like, was that something that was kind of in your family? Like, how did that come about? Well, my grandmother was an accountant. My mother is an accountant. You know, it seemed like a thing that... What you do. Uh (laughs) Uh I get it. (laughs) People were, it seemed like a responsible job, Mm -hmm. you know, something worth paying for college to go learn how to do. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow. And also, I also, I think I had that vision of, I'm going to be the manager of a big fancy hotel. And what does that look like? You probably need a management degree or an accounting degree or mm-hmm. something like that. Okay, so go go do that. Of course. And you, you mentioned lots of siblings, right? So yes. what did like I have one sibling, an older sister, um, and I would consider our house a little bit hectic with just the one sibling. <laughs> so I'm trying to pitch what did your house look like when you were younger? Like I'm assuming it was busy and people in and out and fights and disagreements and makeup. Well, my, parents, my parents worked a lot. My dad uh, was a mechanic and he worked at a hospital and he repaired machines at a hospital. So that was a shift job. So he might work 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And, and work overnight. My mom was uh, working in an office and putting herself through school for, mm-hmm. I don't know, it seemed like my whole childhood my mom was going to school. Mm-hmm. And so I was the babysitter. 
Wow. I was the one that uh, babysat my little, and the minute I could uh, dial 911 and could make soup <laughs> on the stove, I think those were the job requirements. <laughs> Uh, did you guys did you have a go-to like was there a go-to meal that you would make for them like all the time oh no well craft blue box macaroni and cheese <laughs> is an eternal favorite right like do you remember the first time you learned how to do that well this was pre-microwave okay we're talking in the 70s it was rustic right you know we actually had to use the real stove <laughs> I do remember. <laughs> My husband makes the best homemade macaroni and cheese ever. Like people mm -hmm. ask him to make it. And yet about once a year, I still I want my craft blue box macaroni and cheese. Nothing tastes like it. It's right? so true. It, you cannot make it. You can't make, you can't no. make it. Like no. it's not homemade. It has and that to white made. orange does not occur in nature in any way. It's so true. <laughs> But the flavor is distinctive. And you're almost ashamed to admit that you have this craving. You're just hoping that you live with someone who gets it. Right? It's so true. <laughs> it's so true. But no microwave. No microwave. Still, still wow. do not make it in the microwave. You have to wow. make it on the stove. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. <laughs> this is the most random conversation I've ever had on a Skype interview. So thank you. I'm enjoying myself. Anytime. This is what <laughs> I'm here for. <laughs> so I'm assuming you're not in the classroom now, I'm assuming. No, you know, and that's kind of a sad story in that mm -hmm. I, I got so good at teaching, I taught my way out of my classroom. <laughs> is that, is that terrible? No, I, I don't think so at all. I just, um, I was, you know, when the Book Whisperer came out, my husband and I are like, oh, this will be a lovely keepsake. You mm -hmm. know, this will be something we can wow. say we did. You know, mm -hmm. we didn't think people, well, come on. I'm a teacher in a suburb yeah. in the middle of nowhere. I mean, in the middle of Texas, you know, like mm -hmm. I was a blogger. I wrote a book. Okay. You know, I didn't think Look anything was sure. anything was going to happen to it. I mean, what hubris that would have been to think anything was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And um, when it got popular, my head, we, Don and I thought, well, this will die down soon. Mm. It, it didn't really die down, which is <laughs> still kind of surreal and amazing. So people wanted me to come speak at their schools and they wanted me to come out and go to a, speak at a conference. And you know, when you're teaching in the classroom, the students in your classroom deserve 100% of your full attention. That is what they deserve. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And just that push me, pull you of the classroom and the other work and the this, it, I did it for about eight years, you know, wow. taught Monday through Friday, flew out on a Friday night, spoke at a conference on a Saturday, came home on a Saturday night or a Sunday, wow. folded laundry, graded papers, did all those things. Oh I did it for, I wanted to have it all, so that's what that took, right? And what grade? But I taught, uh, the longest I taught, sixth grade. Okay. I taught I'm sixth grade for sixth 12 grade. years. I love 11-year-olds, they're so bizarre. Yeah. And I mean that, no, I mean that in all loving ways. Mm -hmm. Your wife teaches sixth grade too? Sixth grade, yeah, and I totally so, understand. I'm sure if you hear the stories, you totally get what I mean, I, you yeah. know? Uh -huh. And then I taught one, uh, I taught fourth grade for a year and looped with my fourth graders to fifth grade. Have you ever okay. done that before? I Had have the not. same group of kids? I have, I have not, no, but I, I would love, I, I love that idea. Um, would I, you do a second, third grade loop? I, for sure. I totally would. I, second grade is little, like I did second grade in Kuwait and I was, I think I enjoyed it until I got to third grade and I was like, wow, like this is like quite the jump. 
and getting them coming in as second graders, like new to third grade, it was a huge difference for me. Yeah. Throughout the year, I was like, holy cow, like they are so able and so independent in comparison to the second graders. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I don't think I would go back that low. Um, I am pushing, I continue to hear everyone saying, oh, you'd love fifth grade, you'd love sixth grade. So I think eventually I will try mm -hmm. some of the older grades. Um, but yeah, I would have looping, third, fourth, anything higher, second grade, I don't know. I, you take a little bit of convincing maybe, but we we They grow so much. They grow so mm -hmm. much. I mean, you, just what you explained about how much they grow in a year, you mm -hmm. think about two years worth of growth. Uh -huh. and, and then what I also loved about looping was you hit the ground running that second year, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't have that six weeks of getting to know you exactly. business going on, exactly. you know, or all the assessments and everything. Like, you know, your kids, you know, their families. Okay, let's mm -hmm. go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that piece of it. Yeah, I, I think that would be super exciting because that, that piece of getting to know, building those routines literally over again, takes mm -hmm. months, like months, and you're constantly helping and you're practicing and you're modeling and then eventually you get it and then you have to do it all over again the following year. So I totally, I would love the idea of looping for sure. <laughs> well, you know that beginning of the year terror that you have? I don't know if you had this terror, but the first month of the school year every year, I was borderline hysterical because I'm like, oh my gosh, they don't know anything. I want my old kids back. I my know. old kids were so capable. And you get amnesia, right? You get teacher amnesia. You're like, okay, my, my old kids were like this in September also. I've just blocked it out, right? Because you go from having your really super competent kids who've been with you all year. And I mean, please know, I have all love and admiration for kids, but they, they know you by the end of the year and y'all got it down and all the routines are there and they trust you and then you start over again you're like what happened <laughs> second grade's too young for me though man i'm telling you the lowest grade i i student taught in third grade and they were too young they're little they are they're and little i think I, I see siblings. I have third graders who have siblings that are in the grade one and two and they come in and they're like super cute. And then I see them walking in the hallway and I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> no. Not for me. Not for, no. not for me. I, I mentored a colleague in, in kindergarten. She didn't really need a mentor, but we had this program in my district where every first year and second year teacher had a mentor. So mm -hmm. I was uh, Sunny's mentor. And I went down to visit her kindergarten classroom. I needed a nap every time I left. I was worn out just from visiting. I was like, I couldn't do this for 200 days. I just, it's, no a lot. it's a lot. It's a lot. It it's a lot. lot. Yeah. You know what? So I had an opportunity to talk to um, Kobe. Yes. I think and he told me. Did he? And he is obviously just like such a cool person. Um, I had been following him for a while, um, just through like his stuff that he's been doing on YouTube um, with books and mm -hmm. just his like love for reading in general. Mm -hmm. um, and then I saw that you both had a book together and I was like, this is just like crazy. There's <laughs> <laughs> these two amazing people that I like enjoy a lot and they've created this book together. Can you share with us um, what the book, what, maybe what is, what is it called for those of um, you who are listening that don't know? And like, what would, what do you, what do people get from this book? <laughs> well, you know, Colby and I met, met online in 2011, mm -hmm. uh, 
doing book a day because I do that book a day summer reading challenge. And we started Nerdy Book Club that year together, uh, our blog that we still uh, run. And, uh, but all th this whole time, all these years that we've known each other talking about, you know, how we see so many great teachers, administrators, librarians, parents striving in little pockets all over the place mm -hmm. to give kids the access that they need, the literacy experiences we want them to have. But why haven't we scaled this ever? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, we are now rushing to all these one-to-one -one laptop programs. We need to get a device in every kid's hand. I'm no Luddite, you know, I'm never more than 10 feet away from my iPhone at all times. Of course. Mm -hmm. But we never figured out how to get a paperback book in every kid's backpack. Mm -hmm. And that still matters. Mm -hmm. And so Colby, a lot. And I don't think, it may not be flashy. I think I even say this in the book, it may not be flashy. It may not be the kind of thing that gets your superintendent in the newspaper, mm -hmm. but it still matters. Mm -hmm. So kicking around these ideas of like, well, how could we build some systemic, not that Colby and I think we have all the power to be able to do this, but we're one more voice in the, in the, you know, in the wilderness mm -hmm. asking for it. But how could we build systemic and institutional support for mm -hmm. teachers, classroom libraries, for librarians, for the book access that kids need at home. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of where Game Changer got started was that idea of, we know some really great educators out there who are doing things that could could work for you too, you mm -hmm. know? So we got 27 people from all walks of life, all perspectives, all career paths, everybody from Antero Garcia, who teaches at Stanford to, uh, Nikki Barnes, who's an elementary school librarian, to all sorts of people in between, just to share what are they doing in their schools, in their homes to engage children with reading? Uh, what are, what are the, some of the logistical things they've worked out? And then Colby and I, of course, have wrapped all of our ideas around it, mm -hmm. so. Powerful stuff, really powerful stuff. And I think like for me, I think being at an international school, we are um, very lucky in a sense where we are extremely resourced. Um, I've never, I've been to two schools, um, one in Kuwait and again, the one in Singapore. And my school in Singapore is again, very well resourced when it comes to everything. Um, the kids, if you need a book, I almost guarantee you that that book is in the library. If you have a genre that you are looking for, that genre is in the library. If there's an author, a character, whatever it is, um, we can find it for you. Mm -hmm. um, I think we are lucky in that sense. We are one of the those schools, I think, out of so many schools that have that type of resource to be able to do that. Um, mm -hmm. But on the flip side of that, there's so many other schools that can't. Um, so, so what do you do? Because my school in Kuwait was not able to do that at all. So what do you do? Well, right? well when we're talking about systemic inequities, it's an access issue, right? And it's either an access issue or and an opportunity issue or both. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Stephen Krashen, who you might know Dr. Krashen's work because he does work overseas too, but Dr. Krashen, I heard him at a conference years ago, he said, if we could take care of these three things in the United States, we could get rid of the achievement gap in a generation. He said, our kids need reliable access to nutritious food, mm -hmm. reliable access to health and dental care, and reliable access to books. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And he says, we know what does it. We just don't have the social or political will to do it. Mm -hmm. And I, I, his words have never left me. You know, mm -hmm. I hear people talk about, you know, Singapore is one of the countries they're always comparing the United States to on our oh, test boards, really? you know? <laughs> so I'm well aware that Singapore uh, has a good education system. But when we factor out from poverty, American school children score just as well as any other kids in the world. But all we're doing is just testing them to death, driving teachers out of the profession. Our kids need food, they need health care, they need books. Mm -hmm. And so I, I can't take all of that on, but maybe I can take on that book piece a little bit. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's, I, I've, I've read the book and I'm I'm always impressed by everything that you do. And I'll just be honest, like you could do anything and I'd read it. <laughs> You're so kind, thank I'm you. Awesome. I'm so like, just I think part of that is because seeing like just the work that you did with the first one, just like the sense of like care and the strategies that were like very practical um but at the same time like purposeful and explained very very well thought out and i could like literally just take them and start them right away in the classroom oh, so good. I, really, I really really appreciated that good i um, mean there and there were strategies and and um tools that i could use at almost you could use them at every grade level as well it wasn't just like hey this is just for lower elementary or whatever it was like you can use this across the board so i really mm -hmm. really appreciate it. and now they're like stuff that i just don't forget i just know beginning of the year this is what i need beginning of the year this is what i need and i just put it up and it's not even something i even think about anymore um, but i think it goes back to how you wrote it um, and how you laid it out in your books um just so i appreciate that a lot thank you I really really do um, that is useful where does like where does your love for books come from like being an accountant obviously you're reading or wanting to be an accountant you're reading i'm assuming business books and other sort of like how does that how does where i've does spoken about i've spoken and written about this in little pockets of places but i taught myself how to read before i started kindergarten oh i was just always a kid who read mm -hmm. and uh, we didn't have much when i was growing up i think i alluded to that but we had library cards my mm -hmm. mom knew that we needed to have library cards Plus the library was free. It was a great place to take kids on a Saturday afternoon when you didn't have any money, which we didn't. So I grew up uh, with always having a library card because that was our entertainment. My sister and I would walk to the library and get library books. Mm -hmm. So always a reader, um, but that split that I talk about in the book whisper of that reading for school and underground reading over here, the things that I love to read, I really started to feel that when I moved into middle school and high school and we started reading all of those classics like The Scarlet Letter and Huckleberry Finn, you know, mm -hmm. that we would spend two months talking about mm -hmm. and I would be reading other books out of my desk. Mm -hmm. And I guess because I was compliant, I wasn't causing any trouble. My, my teachers right. let me get away with it. But mm -hmm. uh, um, so I was always that reader. Mm -hmm. I just had to make my way back to it somehow to be a better reading teacher mm -hmm. um, because they're not they're not it's not as intuitive as you would think yes like the teaching of reading and the life of a reader should overlap but they don't mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I'm assuming were you more of a I'm assuming you enjoyed teaching uh, reading more than writing oh I love teaching writing too uh, once I figured well, once I figured out that, uh, well, I used to really get all worked up about it. And my friend Susie Kelly, who I did research for her in her classroom for reading in the wild. Uh, I remember 
talking to Susie about some personal narrative assignment that was in our curriculum and was wrestling with how to teach it. And she said, Donalyn, how would you write that essay? Mm. And she said, now just unpack for your kids how to write it. Don't think about, teach them how, you know, like yeah. it's the same mindset, right? How do you approach teaching reading? You have to approach it at some place mm -hmm. as a reader. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you approach the teaching of writing? At mm -hmm. some place you have to approach it as a writer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know, does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And I think it goes back to us as teachers sometimes overthinking a lot. Um, trying to find the perfect formula to write this essay or this paper when that's not really what they need. For one, they just need to be writing, <laughs> right? Um, and then go from there. And not hate it. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> Like even with your little third graders, I bet you already see some who like don't identify, they don't, when they think about, the, they don't see the word reader as part of their identity or writer as part of their identity, they not in a positive way. No, I always ask like, what are your favorite subjects? And it's always PE, they enjoy art, they enjoy <laughs> none of the subjects in the classroom. Um, and we, when we get to it, it's always, well, I kind of enjoy reading. And writing's like a big X, like, especially I love starting the year, the year off um, with poetry and then kind of weaving poetry throughout the year, mm -hmm. just loops back a little bit. But I always, I feel like I do a pretty good job of teaching it. Um, and I strongly believe that poetry is that way in because it's, you get so much freedom. Um, mm -hmm. And I always tell them like, this is your work, like you can't, be wrong like poetry is yours you own it and I can't tell you like you need to move this over you add, need to add a comma or whatever like this is your work and I think that freedom allows them to start to understand like wow writing is unique writing can be I can own it um, instead of seeing like the big bad wolf or the big bad teacher like looking at their work and kind of criticizing it all the time so um, now, you might not read this with your eight-year-olds, but do you know the Billy Collins poem, Introduction to Poetry? Oh, I do. Okay, I do. so I used to read that out loud with my sixth graders, you know, and he talks about tying a poem to a hose, uh, uh, to a chair, uh -huh. beating it with rubber hoses. Uh -huh. And my middle schoolers really had a chip on their shoulder about writing and poetry, mm -hmm. but uh, I think it was it's brilliant of you to access it through poetry. Poetry is so playful. There's so much fun that can be exactly, had. Exactly. And then introducing poetry in so many ways. Like, again, us being so resourced at our school, I often we have like a kind of like a very, uh, we have a, a studio um, in our in our middle school library um, that is typically for our middle school um, kids and high school kids. But again, you can ask and we get to go. So I often ask kids to do poetry. We get to go to the studio and sometimes they're, saying their poems on the mic and we're putting garage band instrumentals behind it so i do whatever i can to kind of grab them and before they know it they forget you know how it is like they forget that they're actually writing and generating ideas and working on standards and all that stuff because it's fun right um so i think the more creative um the more you allow them to express themselves the way they want to um, the easier writing and reading becomes, I think. Well, ultimately, that's what we're trying to do, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't, uh, I hear people sometimes say, I'm giving my students a voice. And there's a mm -hmm. part of me that's like, pushes back against that a little bit. Mm -hmm. They already have this. Mm -hmm. They already have voices. What we're doing is giving them a space to use them. Mm -hmm. 
mm. and modeling and teaching the skills that they mm. need to use their voices any way that they want to. Mm. And writing mm. is one of those ways that they could do that. Mm. But mm. Uh, it's that joyful piece of it too, right? Mm. You know, mm. What I love about what you're describing is you see kids shine in ways that you Agreed. might not otherwise see it. Agreed. 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 You know, Agreed. you probably, some of your little guys are probably like, oh, I didn't know he, he had that in him or I didn't know she had yeah, that in her. Crazy you're saying it and I'm <laughs> in my head right now. And um, he came in, he's a pretty shy kid. And we did, um, we started our year off with like our, our big overarching theme was identity. So we did these like where I'm from poems. And I remember this kid, we did it live on Instagram for like, I'm a little bit of a techie, like I try to be. Um, we did it live on Instagram for our parents. So there's no audience there physically, but they're yeah. watching online. They can watch it on Instagram. Exactly. So what happened, he gets on stage and he gets this poem in front of him and we have like a mic set up and all the kids are looking and he's shy. This is what I know anyway, that he's shy. And he just like starts rhyming and like expression. And I'm like, he gets off the stage and I'm like, dude, like what was that? <laughs> Where did that come from? And now all he, now it's this thing, like his mom said, like all he wants to do is write poetry. And we had awesome. a, a talent show and he wanted to do the same poem for the talent show for the third graders. And he came in and, and I, he said himself, and I remember like, I'm not a writer. I don't enjoy writing. And I think, again, going back to like what we're saying is he found, he was given the freedom to kind of do what he wanted to. It opens up so many doors. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of It's Personal. Please tune in next week to finish up this two-part series with Donalyn Miller. Until next time, peace.